I, I always say this, this uh, on these weekends. We are the congregation of people that don't have a place up north. But actually, that's not true. There are a bunch of people in the first service that actually have places up north that, for whatever reason, chose to stay down here, probably because there's no traffic this weekend, which is really nice. But I digress. I'm glad you're here. My name is Frank. I'm the pastor here at Redemption Arcadia. Um, let's see. What do, what do we got to do? We didn't, we didn't read the passage because it's a long passage, and I'm going to deal with it during the sermon. Um, and I have some other things that I need to take care of uh, as we work our way through this morning. Um, if, if, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of inside baseball, I guess is what you might call it. Um, uh, if you want to know the truth about being a pastor, uh, in my opinion, the perfect job description would be study the word, proclaim the gospel, preach and teach, and just shepherd people. And then all this other stuff, I just, you know, you don't want to really have to deal with. But every job, every job, you have things that you like and then things that you have to do, right? I mean, I'm, well, let's just be perfectly honest here. It's good that a preacher would be honest, so let's be honest. So I have a bunch of information for you today. We hate announcements in this, in this church, but we know if we don't do announcements, nobody knows what's going on. And so I have a bunch of announcements for you, things that you need to know about. So uh, hang in there as I work my way through these. And the first one is this we get to talk a little bit about giving. Isn't that exciting? Um, When I first came here to Redemption Arcadia more than three years ago, it was interesting. I'm I'm old school. When I give, uh, I write a check. Every two weeks, I get paid by the church. First thing I do is I write a check, and then the following Sunday, it ends up in, in in those little boxes. And I've just never... You know, I have a cell phone and everything, and I have a computer, and I know what the World Wide Web is and all that stuff, but I haven't gotten into online giving yet. When I first got here more than three years ago, about 60% of our giving was given into those boxes back there, and about 40% was done online. We're now at a point where 25 to 30% of our giving at Redemption Arcadia is given here, and the rest of it is given online. So almost everybody now, uh, three out of four people have, have transitioned into that. I'm still hanging on. I'm old school. Uh, maybe someday I'll change. But we did have a meeting. Stephanie and I had a meeting with Jason Raber, who is, who's in charge of all of this stuff for all of Redemption. And we have a new online giving platform. So if you are somebody who gives online instead of in the church, you have a new way that we want to direct you towards doing that. Um, uh, the, the new online platform is called PushPay, and uh, Jason showed us it's going to be a lot uh, easier to do, and it's going to cost the church less money for us to do it. And so we're asking everybody who gives online to move over towards uh, this push pay. And here's the easiest way that you can do it uh, is get out your cell phones, and you can do that while I'm preaching. It's okay. Get out. If, if this is, we're talking about giving here. So uh, w- w- uh, get on um, your cell phones and text Redemption Arcadia, one word, to 7797. And what will happen is they will send you back a link or, or instructions or... I'm not sure how, I think somebody shows up at your house and they'll take you through it and they'll explain it to you. Something like, something will happen and they will tell you how to do it. It is really simple. I watch them uh, do that. But also I want to remind you of something else and all the, believe me, all the congregations are doing this. We always talk about how Redemption is one church with nine congregations. And so a lot of people think that if they're just giving money to Redemption Church that it's okay. But in reality, each congregation is still responsible for their own income and their own expenses. We all each have our separate financial statements and separate financial situations. So if you're somebody who attends Arcadia but is giving money to uh, Redemption Gilbert, now would be the time to change that. Make sure that you click on Arcadia. And I told everybody in Gilbert that if you're, 
attending Gilbert but giving to Arcadia. You can just keep doing that. That's fine. But if, if we're doing it the wrong way, we need to make sure that we correct that. And then finally, uh, as many of you know, we have this uh, uh, property purchase that we're working our way through. And so we're adding to Redemption Arcadia the inevitability that we are going to have to raise money for this new property. There is also an additional tab now over and above your regular giving where you can give towards the acquisition and restoration of the, part, uh, of the property on um, this uh, new giving platform. So if you are somebody who gives through the internet, uh, please uh, take care of that sometime in the next uh, month and, um, and we would really appreciate that. Second of all, we are for the first time in our congregation's history, we're going to have Vacation Bible School for the children, which is really exciting. We've never been able to logistically figure it out before because we lease space, but um, a couple weeks ago in staff meeting, Linda who runs our children's ministry, came in and she was all excited. She says, I figured it out. I'm pretty sure we can do it. And so we're going to have Vacation Bible School. It's going to be June 15th through 17th from 6 to 8 in the evening right here. And uh, we, uh, the, the, the one challenge we have, though, is that um, sign-ups are limited to only 80 children because that's all the room that we have for. And we haven't even advertised it yet, and we already have 25 kids signed up. So if you want to have that um, opportunity to put your kids into uh, Vacation Bible School for three nights in June here, and uh, th- this might help some of you. Cody and I will be around, so you know, there will be some responsible people here while you drop your kids off semi-responsible people. Anyway, um, please sign up. You just go downstairs and sign up with Linda uh, down there, or you can sign up online. And then the last thing, really important, again, we have a young congregation demographically. We are really into doing the family thing, and that's exciting. And so we're already at a point where we need to do uh, child dedications again. So we're going to do that on Father's Day on June 21st, but we need to know who's going to get dedicated on those days. And so if you could please uh, go to our website or email staff and we can get that all taken care of. So that's my sort of information dump for you uh, this morning. And now we get to what I would say is the really good stuff. Um, we, when, when the lead team decided several months ago that they were going to do the Gospel of Mark next after Romans, uh, I was so excited. I, I have a confession to make. Uh, the Gospel of Mark is my favorite gospel. Now, they're all wonderful, Okay. But the Gospel of Mark is just my favorite. I, I, I think it just tells... It, all I have to do is really just make a few comments about the text and bam, you're there. It, it is so beautiful the way Mark writes this. My favorite Gospel, and today is possibly my favorite passage in the entire Gospel of Mark. Maybe Mark chapter 8 some things, but this is really significant. Jesus, as you, if you were here last week, he had just been in the Decapolis. He had been east of the Jordan River, east of, of the Sea of Galilee. And he had, deal, uh, he had dealt with that uh, demoniac. I was told the other day that if I had gone to Dallas Theological Seminary, I would pronounce it the demoniac. But, but I, at Fuller, we call it the demoniac. We dealt with a guy who had the 2,000 demons. And, um, and uh, uh, 2,000 pigs gave their lives for the sake of the gospel, rushed down into the sea, died. And the people came to Jesus and they said, you've got to get out of here. And it's the first time in the Gospel of Mark where people came to Jesus and said, we'd prefer it if you were somewhere else. Because up until this time, all we have seen are the people just coming and pressing against Jesus and thronging around him. And so he says, okay. He leaves his guy there who he just saved and he starts evangelizing. But Jesus, so Jesus' presence is still there, but he goes ahead and leaves and they go back across uh, the Sea of Galilee and now they're back in Galilee. And what we're going to look at today is a passage about a synagogue ruler named Jairus, 
But also in the midst of this passage is another story about a woman who, who is, uh, uh, remains nameless. Uh, many people, sort of, it's kind of tough language, but many people just simply refer to her as the bleeder. She's this woman who has been bleeding nonstop for 12 years and can't figure out how to stop it. Uh, in the middle of the story of Jairus and his daughter, this woman comes and accosts Jesus and wants healing. So we deal with that. And then we go back to Jairus and we finish the story. Uh, James Edwards calls this uh, literary technique that Mark uses more than uh, uh, just a few times in the Gospel of Mark. He calls it the Mark and Sandwich, where he starts one story tells another one and then finishes it and the two stories actually relate to each other in ways that we'll unpack and that's what happens here. Uh, the more academic term would be known as inclusio. There's sort of a bookended uh, two stories that are told here. And, and this passage that we look at today, it's Mark chapter 5 verses uh, 21 through 43. So if you have your Bibles or if you have a, an app or something, go there now. That's where we're going to be. But uh, the Really what the big idea I think boils down to here and what we're going to talk a lot about today is this. Desperation is the great equalizer and often pushes people toward faith. We are going to see two absolutely desperate people here who get pushed towards faith by their desperation. And I know that that isn't always the case when it comes to desperation, but in these two cases, they, it is exactly what happens. These two people get pushed towards faith because desperate people are going to do one of two things. They're either going to just, some, just completely blow up at life, which happens all the time, and, and, uh, and essentially swear off God because they see God as the reason for their desperation, or what they will do is they will look around and they'll say, I've tried everything else, so I might as well turn toward God. So very often, desperation is what drives people ultimately and finally as a last resort toward God. And we're going to see a little bit of that uh, today. So I'm going to read this passage in three different sections and comment on it as, as we go. And the first section is the smallest. It's starting at verse 21. And Mark writes these words, And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side of the Sea of Galilee... A great crowd gathered about him. So now we're back to the great crowd coming around Jesus. They want to be around Jesus. And they began to beg Jesus. I'm sorry. And he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, Jairus fell at his feet. Now Jairus is a significant person in this community here. He is the ruler of the synagogue. And he is a Jewish religious professional person. So he's like a Pharisee, he's like one of the priests, he's like one of the lawyers, he's like a scribe who usually get a really bad rap in the Gospels because they're against Jesus. Jairus has a different agenda for Jesus, obviously. So he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, literally he begged him, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death, his daughter is 12 years old, as we'll find out later, my little daughter is at the point of death, she's dying, come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and and live, and Jesus went with him. So, a couple things here. I've already mentioned Jesus, uh, Jairus, is the ruler of the synagogue. So not all of the professional religious people were against Jesus, especially if you were someone who was desperate because your little girl was dying and nothing else had worked that you had tried and now you need to go and find somebody who might be able to heal her. But also, as the ruler of the synagogue, this is really important to understand and point out, this guy Jairus had everything in life 
and everything from the world that you and I today truly believe will make us happy and will fulfill us and will sustain us and will be able to beat back every problem in life that we might have. He had it all as the synagogue ruler. He had power. He had respect. He had social capital. He had social status. He had social prominence. Everything about his social life was he was in charge. He got invited everywhere. People wanted to be with him. People wanted to be liked by him. He had moral authority in his community. And he certainly had wealth. He had all of those things that we look at and say, if I had those things, my life would be perfect. I would never have problems or challenges. He is, he is today's rock star or superstar athlete or entertainer that everybody wants to get a piece of. But now, he's finding out that those things that he has, he can't, they can't fix this problem. All the wealth, all the status, all the power, all the moral authority, none of this can fix the problem he has, and so he is now officially desperate. And desperate people often have faith. And so things start well. Jesus agrees to go with him, but then something happens. <clears throat> and a great crowd followed him, Jesus, and thronged about him. So now this is making this very slow going. Jairus' daughter is dying. You know he must be thinking, come on, let's get the show on the road, let's get moving. And Jesus is having to slog his way through this crowd. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered, many, uh, suffered, under, suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. Now, I don't need to see a show of hands, but I do know as a fact that there are people in our congregation who have had this exact experience in their own life. Amen? You, you, you have some ailment. You can't find a cause. You can't find a cure. You've been to every single doctor. You've flown out of state. You've done everything. You've talked to everybody. And in fact, now you're worse than you were before. That's this woman. And she had heard reports, the reports about Jesus. And so she came up behind him in the crowd and she touched his garment. For she had said to herself, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. In other words, she had faith. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say, who touched me? Now I know there's no tone there, but I just can't help but read that with, with a tone of sarcasm and sass. The disciples are sassing Jesus. Okay? And Jesus looked around, verse 32, to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came to Jesus in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And Jesus said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Again, I, just, I look at verses 25 and 26 and I understand not personally, but I understand because of the number of people I talk to the desperation, the, the frustration, the hopelessness, the dismay of her situation. This has to, I know this resonates with people here in our congregation. And if, and if it doesn't resonate with you personally, you know personal 
you personally know people that this resonates with. She had run the gamut of doctors. She'd been to every single doctor that her, her PPO would allow her to go to. She, she had lost all of her money because her co-pays had, had ballooned to $250 and her deductible was five grand. And yet, and yet she's worse off. She's worse off. She suffered not only from her ailment, but, but she also suffered from the cures. I know people have been through that. My wife's cousin, one of my best friends, went through that for 10 years before they finally figured out exactly what was wrong with him. He was suffering from some of the cures that, that doctors were giving him. I get that. And, and not only that, and, and this is really hard to talk about, and I hope I don't offend anybody in saying this, but, but the truth is, is that is that people who have these conditions also run into very well-intended people, people who are filled with love, mercy, and compassion, and grace, and who want to just help, but who will come and they'll bring a juicer, or they'll bring a guy that they know in some country somewhere else. They'll bring something that nobody else knows about, that if you have a secret passport through the secret portal in the internet, you can get to, and they'll send you something, and you'll be cured, whatever it is. So in other words, all these other alternative cures that maybe are going to help, and nothing helps. And yet there's always hope in these things. And now she's heard about Jesus. But it's not just her physical challenges. She lives in a culture where if you're bleeding, you are unclean. And so in her community, she had been suffering for 12 years from social and cultural isolation. So she's not just suffering physically, she's, she's filled with shame. And as such, I want you to see now the contrast here. She's the exact opposite of Jairus. Other than the fact that they're both officially desperate, she's the opposite of Jairus. She has absolutely no power. She has no status. She's dirt poor. She's absolutely lonely. Nobody wants to be around her. Nobody wants an audience with her. She has no respect or, or acceptance of any sort. Here's what you need to hear. The trouble that this world offers us does not discriminate against socioeconomic status or any other status. It just doesn't discriminate. Jesus came and said, in this world, you're going to have trouble. And it's not going to discriminate. He also says in John, but take heart, I have overcome this world. In his death, there is life for us. He, he, he dries up her blood by the blood that flowed out of him on the cross. She's healed because he paid the cost, because he became unclean for her. And that's what she was hoping for and that's what she was placing her faith in. Verses 27 and 28 said, say she'd heard the reports of Jesus and she's thinking, if I just touch his garment, just reach out in an act of faith. You understand there were a lot of other people that were touching Jesus in that crowd. Do you understand that? Okay, why, why didn't anything happen to, to them? Well, Jesus was a rock star. They were treating him like a rock star. She was coming to him as the Messiah, the creator God of the universe, the Savior, the Deliverer. She came with faith. They were coming with, how can things be made better for me? She was coming with faith. He's the vine, we're the branches, but we actually have to be connected by faith. She brings that faith to him. She says, even if I touch his garment, Again, as a pastor, I, I, work, I, I, don't, I don't just meet and work with people spiritually, but I meet with people who are saying, physically, I'm done. How can I be helped spiritually to get through that? 
people with chronic pain and debilitation, autoimmune diseases, lupus, things that, and things again that we don't even know the cause or the cure. This lady was desperate. I know some of you are desperate. Desperate people often have faith. And here's some really hard teaching. Gosh, this is hard. This is why sometimes God allows grief in our life. Sometimes he'll even cause it. He wants to get our attention. He wants to get our attention. There's one of the most famous quotes ever from C.S. Lewis is this. Pain insists upon being attended to. It insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our consciences. But he shouts to us in our pains. Pain is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. One of, one of the best books I've ever read. I've mentioned it before. I'm going to keep mentioning it until everybody buys it and reads it. It's a book by Dr. Paul Brand. It's it, the title of the book. I can see why you wouldn't want to buy it. Pain, the gift nobody wants. He's a doctor that uh, worked with uh, uh, people who had leprosy, first in leper colonies in India, and then he actually came to New Orleans and worked with lepers there. And he writes about his experiences. And he's a Christian, and he's good friends with Philip Yancey. And he writes about his experiences, and he says, if you go to somebody with leprosy and ask them, what's the one thing, what's the one thing you would want in life? You know what they would say? They'd say, I'd want pain. Because leprosy is a nerve disease that destroys your nerves, and once you don't have any nerves, you can't feel anything. So we, we think that it, it deteriorates the skin and, and then the fingers fall off, right? That's not, that's not what happens. He tells countless stories about people who go to sleep at night with five digits and wake up with three digits because at the, uh, uh, during the evening, a rodent got in and gnawed away two of their fingers, and they slept through it because they couldn't feel anything. We need pain in a fallen world. It sucks, I get it, but we need it. He talks about people who break their ankles and continue to walk around in the city on broken ankles because they don't know. They don't have any idea. They don't know any better. And of course, that makes things worse. Pain, the gift nobody wants. It gets our attention. So this lady comes and Jesus stops and says, wait a minute, something just happened. I really became the vine with somebody and, and I want to figure this out. And, and again, even without the tone, I can just hear the disciples treating Jesus like an idiot. They're, they're mocking the Messiah. I am so glad we live in the 21st century when nobody does that anymore. That's really helpful. But Jesus stops for no one's rebuke. You see in, chapter, in verse 32, he just, he just keeps going and here's why. Jesus wants more than to just dispatch a miracle. You and I want miracles. I get that. I want a miracle. In my life, whatever it is that I'm dealing with, I just want God to fix it, to change my circumstances. That would be the most efficient, least costly way to deal with it for me. And that's what I would like. But Jesus comes along and says, it's not about the miracle. I might do the miracle for you. I might do that. But ultimately, it's not about the miracle. In the, in the kingdom of God, miracle always leads to meeting. And that meeting is with Jesus, the creator God of the universe. 
He wants a relationship with us. He wants us to be that vine and that branch. He wants us to, to be in community with, with each other. And he wants us to be, as, as Paul says, 176 times in his letters, he wants us to be in Christ. He wants our identity, to be, our identity to be submitted to him first and foremost. It's not that all these other things are bad, but if we're putting our faith and trust in them, then they've become idols and these good things have become bad things. Our ultimate identity needs to be in him, in Jesus. And, and, and so the lady comes in fear and trembling. Fear and trembling. Why? What's with the fear and trembling? Isn't she excited? Well, there's a number of reasons why she could come in fear and trembling. I mean, she's in the middle of a Jewish crowd and if they find out that she was a bleeder, she's obviously been touching all of these other people. Legally, they had the right to then take her out of the city and stone her to death if they found that out. That would create a little bit of fear and trembling, I think. She also knows that she's walking up to a rabbi, a Jewish rabbi. I know that's redundant, but she's walking up to a rabbi and the rabbi could look at her and say, you made me unclean by touching you. I'm, I, whatever it is that happened, I'm reversing it. So now for the first time in 12 years, she's experiencing the joy of, of relief and, and healing and maybe, maybe he's going to take that away. So she comes in fear. And, I don't think it's any of those. She comes in fear and trembling because we already know from the text that she knows exactly who Jesus is. He's the creator God of this universe. He's the Savior. He's the Messiah. She comes in reverence and awe. This is the fear and trembling that comes with, with somebody saying, you're going to be everything to me. You're going to be everything to me. She comes in awe and reverence. I, I, I think this is important information to get into our brains about the fear and reverence, the proper fear and reverence of, of God, that, that the fear of the Lord is what leads us to wisdom, which is something we all want. The fear of the Lord is what leads us to salvation. The fear of the Lord is what leads us to insight, discernment, knowledge. The fear of the Lord is what leads us to the kingdom of God. This is not useless information. And the reason is because in our 21st century context, we have done everything we can, I believe, to try to domesticate who Jesus really is, to try to soften who he is, to try to domesticate the cross, to try to soften the cross, to, to try to say that blood atonement isn't really necessary. That's offensive and gross and violent, but that's, that's what it is. It's the creator God of the universe demanding justice, but in his love and his mercy coming and pouring out that wrath on his son so that you and I won't get what we deserve. But in his power, he does that for us. And so when we come to him and submit ourselves to him, there should be some fear and trembling. There should be some awe and reverence at who he really is. And and salvation by him. Again, I can't tell you the number of people that, that have come to Jesus and as a result, they've lost friends, they've lost relationships, they've lost a job, or they've been asked to leave a job. They've lost their community. They've had to change their lifestyle. Whatever it is, you don't just come to Jesus and say, okay, everything that was good is made better, although that can be true. But you come to Jesus and he also says, all of this stuff that isn't helpful to you, it's got to go or change. And that really can be a little bit scary. There's all kinds of, of fear that are playing out in this passage. But when it comes to the fear of the Lord, that's what's constructive and what's needed and it isn't debilitating. This is God, and when we come to Him, He's going to say, all right, you're going to have to die to yourself. That's Mark chapter 8. Oh, and by the way, you're going to be persecuted for your faith. People aren't going to like you because of me. 
It's not that they don't like you. It's that they don't like Jesus in you. Remember that. You're going to have to lay down your life. And oh, by the way, you're also going to have to submit to one another like your spouse. Do you know how many people won't come to Jesus because they don't want to have anything to do with submitting to their spouse? That's a problem. And I know some of you are like, you don't know my spouse. Okay, I don't, but I know Jesus. It, it, it's helpful. Jesus can help you with that. Okay. And then at the end of this section, we see that Jesus is really pleased with their faith. Notice it's not the touch that healed her. This wasn't magic. This wasn't superstition. This was an act of faith by this woman. And her act of faith actually becomes a model for what Jairus is going to need because now this, this drama gets even deeper as we go back to Jairus. And I want you to understand, this is all happening as Jairus is standing there. And I know it's not in the text, but if I were Jairus, this is what I'd be thinking. And I'll read you a document later where somebody else says the same thing. I'd be sitting there going, Jesus, do you know the difference between chronic and critical? There's a huge difference. She's chronic. She's been like this for 12 years. I'm sure if you come back here tomorrow, she'll still be here and you can heal her then. My daughter's critical. She could die at any time. Come on. Let's go. Time is of the essence here, Jesus. See, we always think that we know better than God when it comes to timing. Have you ever noticed that? We're pretty sure of that. We always think we know better than the Messiah. I've said this before. How, I, how many times have I prayed a prayer where I've got a situation and I, and I, maybe not in so many words, but this is my attitude towards God. I pray this prayer. I say, listen, God, I know you're really busy. You've got a lot of other stuff to do, so I've worked this out for you. I have option A, B, and C, and any one of these I could live with, and personally, I prefer A, but if you give me B or C, I can live with those, and God often comes back and goes, I'm going to give you a Q. You haven't even thought of Q yet, and Q is going to be really different, but you're going to be amazed at how it turns out, but you need to be patient. Because my timing trumps your timing. This is how Keller writes about it. He writes this. Jesus says, you, you and I, both of all of us, we're thinking, I can't possibly, Jesus can't possibly love me because Jesus won't be hurried. And Jesus says, truth is, I will not be hurried because I love you. I have this under control. I know what I'm doing, says Jesus. And if you try to impose your understanding of schedule and timing on me, you will always, feel, you will always struggle to feel loved by me. How many of us feel like God isn't doing it on our timing? He must not love me. And Keller calls it right out. He says if you're, if you're always telling God that your timing is better than His, you will always struggle to feel loved by God. Right? You see... All of us, I, I, I forget it. I'm going to speak autobiographically. I believe that my impatience is way more holy than God's timing. I really believe that based on how I act. Amen? Well, watch what happens. Verses 35 through 43. While Jesus was still peeking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. Do not be afraid. I'm here. Believe in me. And Jesus allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and, and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. 
And when he had entered the house, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Who are these people that are causing this commotion and laughing at Jesus? I'll I'll tell you in just a second. Child's not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put some. Uh, put, but he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and they went up to where the child was and taking her by the hand he said to her Talitha kumi which means little girl I say to you arise and immediately the girl got up and began walking for she was twelve years of age and they were immediately overcome with amazement and he strictly charged them that no one should know this and he told them to give her something to eat so now Jesus is back to trying to say I, I don't want you to say anything unlike the demon-possessed guy from the week before. Okay? You just read this story. Verse 35, the people came and said, your daughter's dead, why trouble the teacher anymore? It seems like those people need a little bit of instruction in sensitivity training, right? That just seems so callous. Hey, she's dead, whatever, let's get out of here. Now it's interesting, Jesus says now to see all this fear we have in this? He says, don't be afraid, only believe. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, listen, there's no need to worry because you don't know everything. You think you know what God would do because you played God yourself in the past. But I know everything and I have all power. I can, do, I can heal your daughter even after she dies. I'm God. You're going to have to trust me here. That's what he says. Again, how many times have you and I thought we knew something and then acted foolishly and found out later there was a backstory that would have been really helpful to us if we had known that before we acted, right? I can't tell you how many times I've done that. And every time I walk away and go, I'm going to investigate those backstories before I act next time, and then I just go and act. And they openly laugh at Jesus when he said that she was asleep. And what he meant was not that she's not dead, but he said she's asleep in the sense that I'm going to get her up again. I'm going to raise her from the dead. Who were these people anyway? It, believe it or not, in their culture, this is fascinating. In their culture, if you were a family with means, you would actually go out when somebody close to your family died, you would actually go out and hire professional mourners. That was a, that was a job. I, I don't know what the schooling was like for it or if you could get a master's degree in it, but they were professional mourners. So there's people that would come to people's houses during this time of mourning and they would cry and they would, and they would weep and they would groan and they would grumble and they would tear their clothes and they would put dust on themselves and they would do all of this stuff and they didn't even know the people. They're just there adding to sort of the drama and the grief that's, that's going on there. But also because they're professional mourners, they also know what death looks like. And they're not fooled by anybody who's only partly dead but mostly alive or whatever it is that Billy Crystal said in Princess Bride. They're not fooled by that. And so they laugh at Jesus when he says she's only asleep. <laughs> We're professionals. <laughs> we know she's dead. You're crazy. And then she gets up. I wonder what they thought of their laughter after that. I wonder if they were then afraid. Wow, that was interesting. Really interesting. There are so many different levels that fear plays on. We need to recognize that. Fear is inevitable, amen? We're going to have fear in this world. But is it going to be a fear that, that leads us to God, a fear that's constructive, a fear that understands how the world really operates, or is it going to be a fear that's, that's unhealthy and debilitating and that leads us to destruction? And so you look at this passage and you say, okay, so what? Well, I'll tell you what. There's two points. And the first one that I'm going to deal with is going to take longer than the second one, but they go together very well. And the first one is simply this. In this passage, I also see a tremendous case for patience. You and I desperately need patience. We need to wait on Jesus. Um, 
psychologists and people in and one of the discipline that I like to study other than theology, which is communication, um, sociologists, uh, we talk all the time about how you and I as human beings, we have only one perspective of reality. We have one history of our lives. We have one education package. We have one package of relationships in history and experiences. We have one perspective on reality. We can only see things one particular way. And the trouble is also that we tend to believe that the only way that we see it is the right way and that everybody else probably sees it our way, right? Now, we don't necessarily say that out loud all the time, but privately, internally, in our heart of hearts, we think, I've got this figured out, nobody else does. And there's all kinds of research that shows that this is true. One of the ways that this is spoken about is through something called false consensus effect. We all suffer from false consensus effect. False consensus effect is the fact that you and I all overestimate the degree to which everyone else agrees with our position, values, beliefs, attitudes, likes, and dislikes. We all believe that everybody else sees the world the way, and when we make a decision, we kind of go, everybody's going to agree with this because who wouldn't agree with the way I see this? It's called false consensus effect. We struggle to see other perspectives. We struggle to see other ways. We rarely consider the backstories. And the challenge is that God has all perspective. He sees 360 degrees in every possible direction. He sees at 30,000 feet, 100,000 feet, and the street view. He sees everything and he knows everything. He's not bound by time. He's got every backstory possible. I tell this story. I've told it before. I'll tell it again. And, 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 and if you feel me elevating myself in this story, that's not the intent at all. Usually I don't behave like I do in this story. But it's a great illustration of what I'm talking about here. Many of you know, I, for the last 14 years, I've been teaching part-time communication at Paradise Valley Community College. And a number of years ago, I had a section of COM 100, basic communication. I got about 30 people in the class. And there was this one couple, male and female, 19, 20 years old, cute little couple. They were in love. They would come in together. They would leave together. They would study together. They would change notes. They just were, they were really into each other. And somehow, for some reason, they ended up adopting me. I don't understand what it was, but they ended up really liking me and feeling like they needed to protect me or whatever. And I saw this manifest itself this way. There was another guy in this class, a little bit older guy, not a traditional community college student. He was 25, 26 years old. And he was just a little bit odd or off. Not in a bad way or a scary way, but we'd be having a class discussion and then he would contribute and you could tell everybody's looking at him like, are you really following the conversation? Because that really didn't have anything to do with what we're talking about. And then... Very often, in the middle of class, this class was once a week, two hours and 40 minutes. Can you imagine the pain those kids went through? I'll tell you. Anyway, um, every, very, uh, quite often, he would just, in the middle of class, in the middle of a lecture, he would get up, walk across class, sit down next to somebody, and just start having a conversation with them. It was a little distracting. And so I'd have to go over there and say, hey, you know, we're in the middle of something. Could you go back to your seat? Please go back over there. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Okay. Okay. And then, this was the best part. He had this ability where he could just be sitting there and fall dead away asleep. Sitting up. Complete with snoring. Everybody knew he was dead asleep. A little distracting, but I was kind of like, 
at least he's not getting up and wandering around the class. Let's just leave him alone, okay? You know, somebody's like, grab the ruler. No, we're not going to do that, okay? So one day after class, this couple comes up to me, and, they, and I thought they were going to complain. You know, we pay tuition too, and he's distracting us, blah, blah, blah. But no, they were worried about how he was disrespecting me. Why don't you do something about it? He's disrespecting you. Why would you let him get away with that stuff? And I just said, ordinarily, that's my, I admit, ordinarily, that's my personality. Yeah, get in his face and do something about it. But there was just something that told me, no, I don't have all the information. One of those rare times I acted in wisdom. And I said, I'm not going to do anything because I think there's something else going on that we may never know about, but maybe it'll reveal itself someday. And they were like, well, okay. But if you need us to do anything about it, we, we know some people. Later on, towards the end of the semester, they have to give speeches. The students give an informative speech and then a persuasive speech. The informative speeches are first. A couple of students gave their speeches, and then this guy gets up, and he gives a speech. His informative speech is on chemotherapy, and his credibility statement is that he has cancer, and he's been through two rounds of chemotherapy. And, and if you know anything about chemotherapy, the way that affects some people is that they have the ability to fall dead away asleep even in the midst of a Frank Switzer lecture. <laughs> and that's what was happening to him. And, and also, you know, when, when you're young and you get cancer and you're faced with death, you know what? You're not as worried about what people think about you anymore. That's just true. And I remember when he was giving his credibility statement, I snuck a look at this cute little couple that had adopted me, and they looked mortified. And so after class, people were coming up and talking to me, as they often do, and this couple was waiting. They were, I could tell they were waiting until everybody else had left because they didn't want anybody to hear this conversation. And they walked up to me, and they said, we feel horrible. And then the guy says, how did you know? And I said, I didn't know. I just know that I don't always have all the information. Here's the really cool thing about God. He's got all the information. And he even knows that if you're in the midst of something hard, there must be some plan or purpose in the midst of it for you. And I know that's hard. But it also takes great faith and you're placing your faith in the power of the one who has all power and all knowledge. And that is the creator God of this universe. Jairus' false consensus was that he thought that the only way his daughter could be healed is if Jesus got there before she died and he's going, time really doesn't matter to me. I can do whatever I want whenever I want. There's a painting up here. Many of you know I do prison ministry. I've been doing it for uh, 12 or 14 years and uh, we have a couple of the guys that I work with. I work with a, a number of guys in different complexes but a couple of the guys I work with are in Florence and uh, they've been there a long time and they have, we have painting, uh, one painting by Joe and one painting by Charlie out in our, our lobby. And uh, there's letters that go with them. They're really great artists. Uh, both of them have won first prize at the, at the state fair a number of times by having their families submit um, their paintings and stuff. But what's really interesting about their paintings is the letters that they send with them. And this is a painting that Charlie did 10 years ago for us, for um, me at another church. And this is Jesus and Jairus. And this is Mark 5.36. Don't be afraid. Just believe. I have, I have the letter that he sent originally with this painting, and I want to read it to you. And then I have another letter that he sent me in August last year that kind of updated where he was with Jesus, Jairus, and Mark 5.36. I want to read you both letters. They're extremely powerful. I've, I've had this first letter for 10 years 
Uh, every time I read it, even if I'm alone, I get emotional. So I'm sorry if I get emotional. I, I apologize in advance. I, I shed a lot of tears in first service. Maybe they're all gone now and I can just get through this. But I want you to hear these letters. Dear Frank, well, I have finally finished. I actually gave up two times and then, quote, finished five times and finally on the sixth time I said, okay, I'm done. And even as I'm writing you, I'm thinking of things that my mind sees and yet my hands could not accomplish. But I'll leave it as is and chalk it up to practice. When I first heard that you were in the book of Mark, we were in the book of Mark at Paradise Valley Community Church 10 years ago, only one verse came to my mind. It's Mark 5.36. I'm, I'm sure you know the story. Jairus goes to Jesus because his daughter is sick and he is desperate. He knows that Jesus can heal and so he has hope for his child. Yet while they are on the way to his house, Jesus stops to deal with a woman who has touched him. I can hear what I'd be thinking at that moment if I were Jairus. Okay, this woman is old and she's had her life. My daughter is young. She has her entire future in front of her and she's mine. Jesus, we need you now. This woman has had this problem for many years. Can't she wait just one more day? Could you please hurry, Jesus? Listen to this next line. But God is not locked into our world of time. He can give all of his attention to each of us for as long as we need and not ignore anyone else in doing so. So Jesus is talking to this woman and as he is, word comes to Jairus. It's too late. Your little girl, your dreams, your hope, your flesh and blood, she's dead. And so Jairus collapses as life goes into a blur. But Jesus' response is so cool. He doesn't say, dang, I'm sorry I took so long. Man, if you had only been smart enough to come to me sooner, we could have saved her. Rather, Jesus stoops down and he says with sincerity and compassion and maybe even a hint of excitement, hey, don't listen to them. Don't be afraid. Just believe. Believe. Believe that it's never too late. Believe that she'll live. Believe that dreams can come true and that I won't let you down. And sure enough, he heals her and Jairus gets to enjoy her teenage years. And then parenthetically, Charlie adds, I wonder if he ever second-guessed his plea during those teenage years. <laughs> and then he says, that's terrible, I'm sorry. Anyway, in my last seven years in prison, Charlie's been in prison for now uh, 17, he's been in the system now for 17 years. He's scheduled to get out March 2016, so he's got about nine months to go. I've known him for 12 of those years. Anyway, in my seven, in my seven years in prison, this is 10 years ago, I have leaned on this verse so heavily. Countless times I've had to listen to Jesus say, ignore that report, don't be afraid, just believe. All the guys in prison tell me that no one gets out early. Just believe. Statistics say that my kids will end up in trouble because dad is not at home. Just believe. People say my wife won't be able to wait that long and it's wrong for me to even want her to. Don't be afraid. Just believe. His wife, Shelly, and his two children, Chance and Libby, were here at the first service. They were sitting right over there. We're good friends. Uh, the reason they weren't here for the second service is because they visit Charlie every Sunday afternoon and they had to get down there to see him. So when I painted this painting, I wanted the faceless man, Jairus, to represent any of us as we cling to Jesus in a time of need. Jesus' face is also dark and somewhat unclear. We all have seen that portrait of Jesus with his handsome face and his soft hair and his groomed beard. Isaiah 53 makes it clear, however, that the Messiah would not be handsome. 
You see, God needed his message to be accepted on its own merit, not because some good-looking messenger pulled us in with his demeanor and style. So maybe Jesus had big ears and a bumpy nose and a wiry beard peppered with wood chips and sawdust. I don't know what he looked like and no one does, but it really doesn't matter except that is why I left his features unclear. The courtyard is dark and void of people, not because it's night, but because if you've ever received news that is beyond all your strength to bear, at that moment there is nothing else around you. No voices, no faces, no structures, just you surrounded by a blur. And then in the middle is an area of light from a source we have never seen yet we have all experienced. In my opinion, the one thing that is universal to all people in all times, in all cultures, is suffering. Every single breath, every single person who has taken a breath has felt sorrow. But the sad part is that while we all know sorrow, we do not all know the man of sorrows, who for our sake experienced the worst the world could give so that when we walk our own road of tears, we can cling to him who knows our pain as he whispers to us, ignore the bad news, don't be afraid, just believe. This is a guy who's writing from prison. I pray your series on Mark turns people onto the awesome truths of the Bible. And the next time the world around you goes dark, cling to the one who will turn your darkness to light and don't be afraid, just believe. Bless you, Charlie. And then August 24th, 2014, he writes this. He's been in the system now for 17 years. He's been in Florence for almost 16 years. His birthday had been the previous Saturday. And um, Shelly and Chance's, Shelley, his wife, Chance's son, and Liberty, his daughter, had been able to go down there and spend his birthday with him there in visitation. He said it was a wonderful day. It was a beautiful day. He was with his family. Everything was good. They got a table inside, which is really hard to do. And if you know anything about August in, in Arizona, it's really hot so, they were hot. so they were excited they had a table inside. He wrote all of this to me. And he was also excited because Shelly, who's kind of in the same junk food school that I'm in, his wife loves jalapeno Cheetos and she got the last bag of jalapeno Cheetos out of the vending machine and she did what he called the jalapeno Cheeto dance on the way back to them. And so he was excited about that. And then, and then in the letter he talked about how our culture is so obsessed with death and darkness and yet we have the life and the light and we need to be more about the light and the life. And then the last half of the letter was this. Nine years ago, I did my second painting for you, Jesus and Jairus. It's my favorite story because of Mark 5.36. Don't be afraid, only believe. That verse has been my anchor during my entire prison time. For my first several years, every inmate told me Shelley would not be able to hang on. But ignoring them, God told me, do not be afraid, only believe. Every book and talk show reported statistics about my son whose dad is in prison, how he would be on drugs and be a dropout and he would end up in prison too. I cannot tell you the countless thousands of nights I was up in prayer. Help my unbelief. And God would say, don't be afraid, Charlie, just believe. I refuse to accept that my son would be anything less than Isaiah 54, which says, all your sons will be taught by the Lord and great will be your children's peace. And even when he would do dumb stuff, I would tell him that I was so glad that in Christ he was already righteous and perfect. And again, I would pray at night and say, don't be afraid, just believe. Including county jail, this is my 17th birthday locked up. And if you had told me the way my family would be now, I would have cried those tears that come with big hope. But I still would have prayed, don't be afraid, Charlie, only believe. 
Chance got baptized today. He's got a 4.6 GPA. He plays five instruments. And when he visits me, he leans on me and he holds my hand as we walk around like he's a little boy, not the 17-year-old that he is. He told me that he doesn't have a lot of friends because the world is, is into drugs and pornography and sex and he's just not interested in those things right now. And Shelley did hang on. And Libby loves life and loves Jesus and tells me every day she wants to marry a man like me. <clears throat> so with both hands, I raise middle fingers to statistics because my God doesn't follow the norm. Amen? My son is baptized. My wife loves me. My daughter thinks that being alive is better than anything Santa Claus could bring. Why? Because in Christ, I can ignore what they say and I can not be afraid and I can believe. I just wanted to tell you because I know you care. Dr. Phil and Oprah are wrong. Just because a dad is in prison, it doesn't mean that his kids are without a father. He is, I am. And I am blessed beyond words because of it. Thank you for hoping with me. God is so cool. Charlie. And that leads to the last thing that I want to mention. And, and the reason that Charlie is able to say this in the middle of, a, of an 18-year stint in prison while hanging on to the only thing that he can hang on to, which is the Savior, Jesus Christ. The reason he can do that is because Jesus defiled himself so that we would be clean. Charlie's in prison, but he's clean. His wife and his Kids, they're clean. You and I, if we're in Christ, we've been cleaned. I know we still sin. I know we're impossible to live with. I get all of that. But God looks at us and he sees the righteousness and the cleanliness and the beauty and the, and the purity of Jesus because Jesus allowed himself to be made unclean so that we could be clean. That's what happened when that woman touched him. He said, touch me. I want to be unclean so that you can be clean. We have everything that we need in Christ because he's done that for us. That's who he is. He's the creator God of the universe and he's our savior. Don't be afraid. Just believe. Let me pray and Cody's gonna come and lead us in our time of response. God, I just thank you and praise you for Charlie and his ministry to me. It's an amazing ministry. It's amazing how much I've learned from him and, I, and I'm so privilege to be able to allow him to teach us here this morning as well so God I pray that you would give us the same courage that you've given him and help us to not be afraid but just believe I ask that in Jesus name amen